Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good evening, uh, everybody, and welcome to this evening's lecture. Uh, I hope you can uh, hear me now. Um, my name is Nick Pierce, and I'm the director of the Institute for Policy Research uh, at the University of Bath. Uh, and I'm delighted this evening to be uh, hosting this public lecture by Jonathan Porritt, um, part of a series of lectures we've been um, hosting at the Institute for Policy Research on climate change, on food and farming, and other issues that um, relate to you know the huge challenges we face as a society in. Uh, decarbonizing, achieving net zero, and tackling the big challenges of climate change. And Jonathan Porritt um, has been, as you will all know, I'm sure, that who've signed up to this evening's lecture, has been on the front line of environmental campaigning for more than 45 years. He's been a member of the Green Party throughout that time, um, has been the director of Friends of the Earth uh, in the 1980s, founder director of Forum uh, for the Future, the le UK's leading sustainability charity, chair of the UK Sustainability uh, Sustainable Development Commission, President of Population Matters and Conservation Volunteers and the Chancellor of Keele University. So he comes with huge expertise uh, and credibility uh, as an environmental uh, author and campaigner. Um, and his work as an author and broadcaster in particular has had you know, a huge impact over the years. And he's here to talk tonight uh, about his latest book, uh, Hope in Hell, um, a powerful call to action about the climate emergency published uh, last year in the summer of last year, and in particular to talk to us tonight about decarbonisation and recarbonisation, um, uh, not something we hear as much of perhaps in, in public discourse, um, understanding how we meet the net zero challenge, not so much just from decarbonisation, but also from the question of recarbonisation, how we think about the role of nature, natural systems in the net zero transition. Um, so. Uh, this is a you know, big question. Why do we not hear as much about it as we do on things like green energy, um, uh, clean energy? Uh, and will there be, particularly as we look forward to the Glasgow COP26 later this year, um, what will be the role of decarbonisation uh, agendas and nature-based solutions in um, thinking about the net zero challenge and tackling the climate change challenge? So, uh, a really, really interesting subject for us to uh, debate tonight with Jonathan. Before we start, I've just got a couple of housekeeping points I'd like to just to share with you all. Please note that your cameras and your microphones will remain uh, switched off. If you have a question, please submit your question uh, via the Q&A function, and we'll try to respond to, to as many of those as we can at the end of the session. I'll be putting your questions to Jonathan after he's given his talk. Uh, and the session is being recorded, so filming and photography is taking place and subject to no technical difficulties. We'll make the session available um, later as a podcast and as a, as a video. So many thanks indeed for, for joining us this evening. And without further ado, I'll hand over to Jonathan Porritt. Jonathan. Nick, thank you uh, very much indeed. And uh, delighted to be able to contribute to your lecture series tonight and to reflect a little bit on what I think is an increasingly important issue, which you mentioned actually in your intro, Nick, which is why have we heard so much less about the whole story of recarbonization, as I call it, um, than we have about decarbonization? And have we actually now got ourselves into a position where 
we've left it so late on the recarbonization story that we're now in catch up mode and may not actually get to the place where we ought to be. And that's what I want to explore because it's a sort of fascinating conundrum that we've delayed at so many different points in the whole climate change discussion and debate. We've lagged behind what the science has told us, uh, policy lags behind science, implementation of policy lags behind the policy, behavior change with ordinary consumers lags behind all of that. We've got these built-in ubiquitous lag effects going on in the system these days, which makes it really difficult now to move at the pace that we need to move. But I don't want to start on too gloomy a note because actually, notwithstanding our worst fears about the pandemic obliterating the whole climate change agenda during 2020, that really didn't happen. In fact, it, it didn't happen at all. It was a really rather remarkable year in terms of a, a quite dynamic process of change going on amongst key constituencies in the debate. Um, that was true for politicians. We saw some quite remarkable commitments coming forward from governments, most notable perhaps from China to achieve a net zero economy by 2060, followed rapidly by South Korea and Japan. And of course, at the end of the year, an enormously uplifting moment where a sensible, rational human being entered the White House and we began to see what could happen with the USA back in the climate diplomacy business. And actually for those who had a chance to look at what uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were putting forward during their election campaign, their climate action plan, it's a pretty remarkable document and a pretty remarkable policy position beginning to emerge now just three or four weeks into the presidency. So lots of things happening at the government level. And it is worth reflecting just momentarily that the whole concept of net zero has really only been with us as a go-to policy priority for three years, three, four years. Before that, everybody would talk about carbon neutrality. And now everybody, including, of course, governments, businesses, civil society organizations, universities, we're all into the net zero story. Um, I'm not going to go into any of the terminological complexity around net zero. I think we all pretty much get what it means which is getting as close to zero as we possibly can, absolute zero. And then for those residual greenhouse gas emissions, which are left over by the given target date, be that 2050 or 2040 or 2035, we then have to compensate for those residual emissions by ensuring that we draw down out of the atmosphere the equivalent of those residual emissions, which of course is where the recarbonization story comes into its own uh, big time. So in that regard, it's been really fascinating to see what I call a quickening of the pace. And for those who follow corporates, for instance, the whole corporate sustainability world, it's been an even more remarkable 12 months, really. Uh, the UN's race to zero mission possible. You've now got companies signing up to increasingly ambitious net zero goals all around the world um, and pretty much every day you get another bold commitment. So today, for instance, I track this stuff slightly geekily. Today, Virgin Media went for a net zero goal by 2025. Not satisfactory to go for 2050 or 2040 or 2030, but 2025. And I quite like this competition, this notion that my net zero is bigger than your net zero. And driving that process of ambition, competitive ambition actually is no bad thing. It's no bad thing. It makes companies think they're 
think through their responsibilities in a different way. And they need to, because of course, we're not just seeing a quickening in human affairs when it comes to the climate, we're seeing a startling and often terrifying quickening in terms of the natural world, what is actually happening by way of the impacts of accelerating climate change on different ecosystems in people's lives right now. And I'm not gonna go into that uh, this evening because we really don't have much time for that. Uh, most succinctly summed up for me by one of the um, IPCC's, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's authors of the 2018 report on uh, 1.5 degrees centigrade, what we need to do to stay below 1.5 by the end of the century, which was simply everything is getting worse everywhere, much faster than we once thought possible. That's kind of what the science tells us in a very, very small uh, nutshell. So that quickening is what should be focusing our minds. So when I wrote Hope in Hell, I tried to focus on these three big areas. One, the decarbonization story. How do we stop putting the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere in the first place? Secondly, the recarbonization story, because as I'll explain briefly, we are going to have to take billions of tons of CO2 back out of the atmosphere. So how do we do that in a really cost-effective uh, way? And the third element, is given that the gap between what the science tells us now and what the policy position currently looks like, even the most progressive policy position, given that gap is still massive, absolutely massive. I mean, there is no way that current policy is aligned with the actual science of climate change today. Given that gap, what do we need to do politically? And Hope in Hell has, as much of a focus on that political context as it does on the nature of climate science, our response to that climate science, and then the understanding in my mind that to narrow that gap, politicians are going to have to be put under a great deal more pressure than they currently feel themselves to be under, uh, to bring those two things close together, the science and the, and the policy. A great deal more pressure has to be brought to bear on politicians the world over, and of course, because hope does spring eternal, as we all know. We love to think that COP26 at the end of this year might be one of those places where that additional pressure can be brought to bear and we'll see a further quickening in the pulse of political response. I very much hope that is the case. So the story about decarbonization and recarbonization is relatively simply told. Um, we love this image of the bathtub, as you know, everybody goes straight to the bathtub to explain what is happening in terms of the presence of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And we have quite rightly, over the last 10 years, been focused on not putting anything more into the bathtub by way of greenhouse gases. So turning off the tap, as people call it. And that means wholesale decarbonization of our economy, root and branch, every single aspect of the economy. To get to net zero, we have to get as close as we can to zero in that decarbonization story. And that entails some pretty dramatic changes. Tons of stuff happening here. I mean, to be honest, the last three or four years, when you look at what has happened on a whole suite of technologies is a very remarkable period of time uh, in terms of our technological response to this. I was reading an article today uh, 
which indicated by the end of this year, we could be seeing somewhere between 50 and 55% of the UK's total electricity reliably generated through renewable electricity. I go back to the time when Sir David Mackay, a very illustrious scientist, chief scientific advisor to the government um, more than 10 years ago now, and David Mackay argued vociferously that renewables would never be able to do the heavy lifting in terms of decarbonizing the electricity system, the supply system here in the UK. I'm sure he would be celebrating the fact that that was an extremely dodgy judgment at that time because renewables in the UK now are performing amazingly. And the grid intensity, therefore, the amount of CO2 emitted per unit of energy generated, our grid intensity keeps coming down and down and down. 66% reduction in grid intensity over the last seven years. I mean, that is pretty remarkable. That is pretty remarkable. So many, many really exciting things going on here. And we have to keep pushing on this as fast as we possibly can. The whole decarbonization story depends on that foundation, on making sure the electricity supply industry can be decarbonized as much as possible, pushing for 100% renewables if we can, coupled of course with increased investments in storage, efficiency and smarter grids. When we talk about decarbonization, it's not just renewables, it's that integrated package. And it worries me a bit when people don't talk about the integrated package because renewables without storage, never gonna get anywhere close to net zero. Uh, renewables without efficiency, uh, absolutely lethal illusion, because if we can't do the efficiency bit properly, then we'll never be able to generate enough renewable electrons to do the job that is necessary. And we have to bring the whole grid reform story into the picture as well. So again, if I was just talking this evening exclusively about decarbonization, I would be talking as much about efficiency and storage as I would about generating technologies, whether it was wind or solar, whatever else it might be. And I'd probably spend a bit more time on efficiency than I would on anything else because it worries me enormously that we still don't give the attention to the efficiency story that we really need to. I've just finished reading Bill Gates's uh, new book in which he seeks to tell us all how to avoid a climate crisis, which is wonderful. Um, efficiency gets half a paragraph in a 230 page book. And he does own up quite touchingly actually to say that he never really felt that efficiency was a terribly serious part of the deal. And he's not persuaded it is even now. So in that particular regard, in no others of course, I put Bill Gates firmly in the Dominic Kamin, Cummings camp of energy efficiency and what it means. Cummings was notorious for telling Boris Johnson that the whole energy efficiency side of the climate agenda was, quotes, boring, and therefore he should focus on all sorts of other things. And we can see that now in the chaos, utter chaos, surrounding the government's green home scheme and various other efficiency-led initiatives. Efficiency first is the very simple story. And then build out from that efficiency proposition with continuing investments in improving increasingly cost-effective renewable technologies, uh, enhanced by improving increasingly cost-effective storage technologies, um, all working much more effectively through smart grid systems. 
uh, increasingly at the local and city level. So it's this this side of it. I I don't want it to sound complacent, but it's all, you could almost say, okay, that's done and dusted. We kind of do know everything we need to know to do this accelerated radical decarbonization. We might not be doing it in the way that we should, but we kind of know what it looks like. We've got our arms around it, and now we just need to get on and do it and not be blown off track by lots of um, spurious red herrings that occasionally crop up, uh, such as nuclear power, for instance, which again, you may want to come back to during the uh, Q&A. Bill Gates, of course, massive fan of uh, nuclear power, thinks it's the, the solution to all our decarbonization prayers. So this is a really big deal. For me, this is the most encouraging side of a technology-driven view of climate mitigation. And it is well worth being encouraged by it because after that, it gets a lot harder. So at the moment, I'm just talking about the 100% decarbonization of our current electricity supply system, 100% renewable storage efficiency, et cetera. In order to do what we need to do on transportation and on heat, we will absolutely have to change the rules of the game. We will need at least twice as much and probably three times as much electricity to do those decarbonization stories for transport and heat. So it's no good just aiming to do decarbonization of today's electricity supply industry. You have to think what that decarbonization story looks like for an industry that needs to be three times, let's say, three times as big to ensure that we can um, deal with all the greenhouse gas emissions from transport and all the greenhouse gas emissions today from heat, predominantly, as you know, from the use of gas in our heating systems or fossil fuel generated steam, whatever it might be. So this is a, this is a big story. We have to be uh, decarbonizing that radically for three times as much electricity as we're using today. And that's because we have to think beyond that of the what are called the hard to abate uh, sectors, and they are hard, steel, uh, cement, chemicals, shipping, aviation. They are posing all sorts of technology challenges. And the only thing I just want to leave you with as a thought today is in the last two years, really, I have seen more innovation being brought to bear on those hard to abate sectors than we saw in the previous 20 years. It's as if everybody has suddenly woken up to the fact that you can't just deal with electricity, you have to deal with the totality of emission sources in a mature industrial economy. And that's where, for me, a lot of the innovation now is going to be brought to bear. What does it mean to talk about green, low carbon? We'll never get to zero carbon, but low carbon steel. What does it mean to talk about ultra low carbon uh, cement in order to ensure that the building industry can reduce its total greenhouse gas emissions? Can we look forward to a time where we have a net zero shipping industry, global shipping industry, uh, in a way that calls on a huge number of new technology breakthroughs that are becoming more available. All of these areas are open to a lot of very encouraging technology, innovation-led technology change. 
for me, that's exciting. Governments are going to have to play their part in this. We need a lot of investment from government, working in partnership often with the private sector. And to be fair to our government, the UK's government, to the EU, and uh, in countries like Japan, South Korea, and now in the US, we are seeing a ramping up of R&D funds to promote uh, more breakthrough innovation in low carbon technologies. It's definitely happening um, and it will make a big difference. It takes a while to play that through the system, but it will make a difference and we absolutely need it to make a difference. So we're seeing what I call a proliferation of roadmaps, roadmaps to zero carbon steel or zero carbon cement, whatever it might be. People are beginning to cotton onto this and at the same time, this is the last little bit of the recarbon of the decarbonization story I want to talk about. We're realizing that we can't do this without some very dramatic changes in the industrial base, essentially. You will have noticed, I'm absolutely sure, how in the last 18 months we've seen an explosion of interest in hydrogen. And an awful lot of these roadmaps in the hard to abate sectors steel shipping, et cetera. An awful lot of the roadmaps have an awful lot of green hydrogen in them because at a certain point, it's almost impossible to find any other way of bringing the emissions as close to zero as possible. So in steel, for instance, we have a number of technologies available to us now, which would help to reduce the overall carbon footprint per ton of steel, virgin steel delivered, but not eliminate it. And it's only when you start talking about green hydrogen as the principal fuel source into that, that you can begin to look to a near net zero for a whole global industry. Um, I think maybe we'll come back to green hydrogen. Don't forget when people talk about hydrogen today, it is not green. It is a fantastically carbon intensive industry at the moment. 98% of the hydrogen used in uh, chemicals and refining and all the rest of it, 98% is produced essentially using uh, fossil fuels, hydrocarbons. What that means is that it has a massive carbon footprint, 830 million tonnes of CO2 emissions every year from hydrogen. So whenever I hear anybody suggesting that hydrogen is already a clean energy source, I do often suggest they should go and wash their mouths out. It is a very dirty industry indeed, even though the burning of hydrogen itself might be clean. To get from 98% fossil derived hydrogen to 98% say green hydrogen derived from renewables, that's one of the biggest and most challenging roadmaps that we face today. So enough on the decarbonization story, it's there. Politicians could push this stuff much harder, much faster, could use a wide variety of policy, policy instruments to do that. And in my opinion, we could easily get to net zero positions for a lot of these industries way, way before 2050 with the right kind of policy settings. So then we come to the other side of the equation, which is there's still a lot of water in the bath. Even if we stop putting more water into the bath every year, there's still a lot of water in the bath. And that is what is causing the problem. That's what's causing the heating problem. And until we get take some of that water out of the bath, I'll stop using this analogy in a moment, till we start 
reducing the level of those greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we're gonna see a continued warming effect. This is the price we pay for 30 years of prevarication, uh, 30 years of deliberate obfuscation and dishonesty by the fossil fuel industries, uh, 30 years of pretty much um, staggering incompetence and vested interests in energy and climate decisions over the course of that time, 30 wasted years basically. And now we're in a situation where we have no choice. We have to plan for removing billions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere every year for a very long time. That's the reality. Before we get into that story, when we talk about recarbonization, the first thing to remind ourselves of is that this is one of the most brilliant opportunities simultaneously to heal some of the damage that we've been doing to the natural world over those same 30 years. We haven't just been destroying climate stability or making climate stability a, a very difficult goal to achieve. We've simultaneously been laying waste the natural world, as you know. And the astonishing new report from Sapatha Dasgupta on the economics of biodiversity lays out the consequences of that 30 years of utterly wicked vandalism of the natural world in, in a degree that is quite painful to read. I read a lot of this stuff, but it's, it's pretty bad. So for me, any big opportunity to start doing some of the healing of the natural world, which is necessary in its own terms with a million species at risk of extinction, endless ecosystems constantly under growing pressure, et cetera, et cetera, you know all this stuff. Any big opportunity to start looking to that healing agenda, which simultaneously helps us address the climate emergency agenda, that is a kind of synergy made in heaven. And although policymakers are very reticent, uncertain about this, don't quite know how to address this in the way that I think they will need to get comfortable and confident with, the whole idea of nature-based solutions to the climate emergency is an agenda, if you like, which is just going to grow and grow and grow and eventually, eventually get as much attention, uh, as much focus, from policymakers, um, investors, innovators, as the whole decarbonization agenda does today. That absolutely isn't the case right now. The amount of really hard-edged applied research and innovation going into this area is still less than it needs to be. The number of schemes that are being rolled out as pilots or tests of various um, nature-based solutions are still far fewer than we need to see in the world today. Will COP26 in Glasgow address that imbalance? That's somewhat up for grabs at the moment. Um, pretty much every COP going right back to Paris in 2015 has continued to play down the importance of the nature-based solution side of things. In fact, the Paris conference itself in 2015 was the first time that many of these nature-based solutions were given a really serious airing in Paris. And since then, we have not seen the gathering 
of international consensus about what needs to happen to put that right. So what are we talking about here? I think, again, these are categories of concern, if you like, that are pretty well known to an audience such as this. And we start with all those biomes and ecosystems that we know we absolutely have to protect. We start with the need to eliminate further deforestation from all the uh, economies of the world that still depend on significant levels of deforestation. We know we can move on from an end to deforestation to talk much more about afforestation, reafforestation, which is a critical way of bringing CO2 back out of um, the atmosphere into terrestrial uh, ecosystems, into the biosystems. We know that we can move on beyond that to look at a whole series of different ecosystems, whether we're talking now about wetlands or bogs, peat bogs, or the blue carbon areas, the marine opportunities to look at kelp and seagrasses. When you start doing the net of all the opportunities available to us to bring forward nature-based solutions, it is enormous, absolutely enormous. And we're gonna need all of that because if we're serious about net zero, we're still going to get to a position where to net off the residual emissions that we have by 2050, by 2040, by 2035, that's going to entail a very great deal of recarbonization into the Earth's natural systems, back into those natural systems, simultaneously providing this uh, overall healing effect. This could have immediate policy impacts. I'm struggling personally to get my hands around exactly what the government's post-CAP position is for farming here in the UK. I was never one of those who was taken in by the silver-tongued Michael Gove when he was at the Department of the Environment and talked about a wonderful renaissance for British farming once we were out of the EU. All I can see at the moment are often very glib words about public money for public goods without any recognition of what it's going to mean to get that concept nailed down from a robust, scientifically robust, cost-effective perspective. I don't think farmers have a clue at the moment what they're going to be asked to do to make their contribution to a nature-based, land-use-based contribution to climate mitigation. I don't think they have a clue. And that's ridiculous because we know Although you might be able to move forward some technology solutions relatively fast in the area of decarbonization, when it comes to recarbonization, these are often slow change processes. I'm very excited, for instance, about the whole area of agroforestry. I've been reading a lot about agroforestry, looking at some of the fantastic work that's being done by researchers around agroforestry at the moment. These are not schemes or programs or landscape scale interventions that can be done in one year, two years, three years. We're talking about decadal shifts in land use practice and investment. So the longer we delay on this, the harder it gets to see the feasibility of these huge scaled contributions that the recarbonization agenda could bring. Now I'm hopeful about this I think when politicians get their heads around the scale of opportunity here, I do think that we will begin to understand just how significant this could be. And for me, that's a kind of policy area 
which will see a lot more interest in politicians and a lot more of that solutions focused go-to um, dynamism that we really do need. So I just want to end, if I may, in balancing off the decarbonization with the recarbonization by talking about the politics of all of this. I have to go there because right now, as I said, although politicians are doing a better job today than they were doing five years ago, that's for sure. And I don't doubt they'll be doing a better job uh, this year than they did last year and a better job next year. It's still all very incremental. It's still hard work. It's still slow, although they are happy to sign up to a climate emergency, happy to sign up to the notion of a net zero economy by 2050. The real message that we all have to take away from that, I'm sorry to say, is that signing up to these things, particularly things that don't have to happen until 2050, is the easiest thing a politician can possibly be asked to do. I get utterly disgusted at the endless falling back on 2050 rhetoric. Every time I hear someone talk about what they need to do by 2050, I just want to wave my arms in the air and say, forget it, talk to me about what you're gonna do by 2030. That's honestly the only date I'm interested in. And in all the work that Forum for the Future does with all of our partners, and we work with a lot of big companies around the world, our, our critical friend role is to say, get real about this. Look, it's great to have a 2045 target or whatever it might be, but honestly, it makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. What you really have to do now is to demonstrate what you're capable of making a real difference on between now and 2030. We need that same urgency in the political system. We don't have it now. Uh, I don't want to comment on any of the particular party political positions, um, the three major parties in this UK, uh, in the UK, they're all miles adrift of what actually needs to happen in terms of fit for purpose, proportionate policy responses to the science as we know it now. Uh, we're probably not going to go there in our discussions this evening, but my logical conclusion, so when I look at that gap, my only conclusion that I can reasonably come to is that we're going to need every tool in the political toolkit to narrow that gap, including significant levels of civil disobedience, uh, direct action of the sort that we saw back in 2019 with the emergence of XR, Extinction Rebellion, and in particular, the young people's climate action movements of one kind or another, which was one of the biggest and most inspiring new sources of energy in the climate movement that I've seen in, uh, in a very long time. So the tactics of this, the political response to this will become important, but um, hopefully we'll uh, see that reemerge once we've got the hang of living with uh, COVID-19. I've stopped using the phrase post-COVID because it won't help anybody to get their hands on the reality of what that world looks like either. And Nick, I'll stop there, I think, because I'm looking forward to some uh, discussion Q&A, and I've deliberately trailed one or two of the areas that you might want to go um, in terms of uh, things that may be of interest to the audience this evening. Thanks, Nick. Great. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. I mean, it's a really powerful uh, lecture, and we've got... Um, yeah, a huge number of questions, as you might anticipate. Um, so I'm going to do my best to try and sort of group these and 
and hope to answer as many as we can. And I'm sure they'll come in as you as you give your answers, Jonathan. Um, but just if we can start on the on the decarbonisation side of things, and we'll come across to recarbonisation. But on the decarbonisation side, um, there are a, a couple of questions about nuclear. If you could just say a little bit more about that. Um, I mean, you 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 mentioned in passing, but it would be good just to just to sort of get your your sort of definitive uh, summary on on the role of nuclear. Um, and, uh, and I think a couple of questions on the issue of uh, moving to 100% renewables and the implication of that for things like land use, biomass, a question about biomass and the destruction of mature forests, another question on, uh, on solar deployment and other renewables taking up land use from what might potentially be the recarbonisation agenda. So could we just do nuclear and then that question of renewables and land use? That would be really good. Sure. Well, I'll try not to be too obsessive about the nuclear story because it, it worries me actually quite a lot that an increasing number of environmentalists now don't believe it's possible to do net zero without nuclear. And that concerns me because, frankly, nuclear is not a technology that we ought to be embracing if we can possibly do without it. And I've laid out on many occasions what the disadvantages about nuclear might be. Uh, particularly in terms of the cost of nuclear, which is it's now by far the most expensive way of delivering a kilowatt hour of energy into any system that you care to mention. The lead times, the construction times are now extraordinary. We still don't know what to do with nuclear waste. Uh, we still have real concerns about the security of nuclear facilities across the UK um, and how we're going to protect against what are difficult times in terms of uh, threats uh, to the security, the national security of the UK. The links between nuclear weapons and nuclear power, I'm sorry to say, are still alive and well in the UK and in all nuclear uh, weapons countries, um, understandably. Um, and you can go on and on and on. Um, I'm not so concerned about low-level radiation and safety issues. Uh, the track record of nuclear apart from one major disaster every decade. The track record, operating record of nuclear reactors actually is, is not as bad as campaigners sometimes make out. Well-run nuclear power programs are pretty safe and actually manage the risks pretty adequately, frankly. Um, so for me, the, the real story is opportunity cost. Because if we pile into this nuclear, the idea that nuclear can help with net zero, then we're going to lose out on doing what we need to do, particularly around the efficiency, storage and renewables side of things. Um, last point on nuclear, it won't make any difference in the UK anyway. Um, if we're really serious about getting to net zero by, let's go with the 2050 for the time being, I can assure you we'll need to get there a lot sooner than that. But the contribution that new nuclear can make to that is um, very limited indeed. We will have Hinkley Point C. I'm assuming that EDF won't go bankrupt before Hinkley Point is finished, but I'm not putting any money on that, I can assure you. Sizewell C is now up in the air again, and you may have seen that two of the big investors who were hoped for investors in Sizewell C, Legal and General and Aviva, have now said, uh, we're not going to touch this, thank you very much. People are a bit less com comfortable about the Chinese investing in the UK nuclear industry in the way that apparently we once were comfortable. So I'm not sure that Sizewell C will ever go ahead and I can pretty much guarantee that Bradwell won't either. And all the other plans for a nuclear renaissance in this country have withered 
uh, on the vine, as it were. So for me, focus on what we know we can do. Stop doing all this stuff about nuclear pipe dreams because they're probably not going to happen. And please, Boris, if I can issue a direct message and stop saying that the UK is going to be a world beater when it comes to producing a viable fusion reactor in 10 years. Really and truly, <laughs> you just wonder sometimes what that guy is on. Uh, well, not too often, actually. But. So for me, it's a question of priorities and opportunity costs. Um, I'm very happy to, to sort of provide more detailed answers to that. Yeah, which leads into, can we really do it with that much renewable electricity on the system? And it's intriguing this because obviously those renewable technologies do require land or sea space, as it were, rather than land, ocean. The onshore wind and the solar story for me are completely compatible with a, an approach to land use, which speaks to a very different kind of management of the land. So we go on holiday every year here in Cornwall. We love being in the midst of several Cornish wind farms. I cannot honestly say that the farmers of that land are inconvenienced whatsoever by the wind turbines that they have. They have just the same concentration of livestock on that land as they would without the wind turbines. Well, maybe marginally reduced, but it is a marginal reduction. Mm. And when you do proper planning and siting of the solar farms, it's equally fair to say that you can actually reduce the negative impact on biodiversity, but you have to plan for it. It doesn't happen without being really careful about that. It'll still be a tiny percentage of the total land take. But look, I'm, I'm sensitive to those concerns that people have genuinely, which is why I'm most excited about the offshore stuff. And I have to say that the leadership that the UK has now in offshore wind technology is remarkable. And we, we are pushing on down that path. We are still maintaining that uh, lead. And when Boris Johnson talks about 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, that's completely deliverable, completely deliverable. Uh, you may be one of those people who get a bit worried seeing a wind farm when you're walking along the beach at whatever point it might be. Honestly, if that's your aesthetic concern, all I can say is tough luck because we're going to see we are going to see tens of thousands of turbines invested in around europe in as many places as we possibly can and that's before we go to the really exciting stuff which is offshore floating wind turbines anchored to the floor not with the mast actually embedded in the sea floor but anchored to the sea floor with these huge steel hawsers and the turbine's getting bigger and bigger to take advantage of the much higher wind speeds that you get further out to sea. Um, the uh, Dong is now building the first 15 megawatt wind turbine. One turbine, 15 megawatts. And it's, a, it's an astonishing prospect that within five to 10 years, we will see floating wind farms um, with 15 megawatt turbines uh, all around the UK and in the North Sea and all around the Irish coastline and France, Portugal, Spain, because the technology is just getting better and better. So this is a brilliant prospect. There are some environmental issues, but they, I believe, are entirely manageable. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, just a couple of questions on, on uh, storage and efficiency. 
So uh, a question on the sort of best storage options and, you know, thinking about in particular the kind of dependency of, of, of electricity supply on rare earth minerals and what that entails. Perhaps you could say something about that. And then, then there's a question also there about, you know, that, the, the Jevons paradox that, you know, that you make something more efficient and people consume more of it. And, um, uh, you know, as we see with um, how people have, you know, chosen to sort of heat and heat their homes and use fridges and freezers in the 20th century. So could you just say something a little bit about that? And I, I have a personal interest just on the efficiency side in understanding why we've done such a bad policy job in contrast to the innovation and the deployment mm. that's taking place now on, on, on renewables in particularly household efficiency. Yeah. You know, why have we got, why have we been so bad with every policy instrument we've chosen in the last decade and a half uh, to, to get households to improve their energy efficiency to, and to shift it? Well, you know, because as you said in your talk, we've got a big shift to make away from use of gas boilers in our homes, yeah. um, as well as making ourselves more efficient. So, so be just interested in your, in your answer on that too. Yeah. On the storage side, these are massive. And I'm, to, to be absolutely honest, I would much rather we didn't have to go through a 10, 20 year period where electric vehicles replace the internal combustion engine. It's, it's, it's not a transition that fills my heart with joy because to make an electric vehicle still requires a huge amount of energy, significant resource flows. Mm. To make the batteries on which the electric vehicles depend still requires an enormous amount of raw materials to be extracted from around the world, particularly some of the rare earths, the cobalt, the lithium, in places very often where human rights are an irrelevance in the mining industry, I'm sorry to say, and where significant damage is being done to the environment and to people. So this doesn't gladden my heart. I'm, I'm glad that the electric vehicle will be the means by which the internal combustion engine is finally put out of its polluting misery. It is on death row, it will go, and it will go within the course of the next 15 years, which is actually pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, there's still be a lot of petrol and diesel cars on our roads because you'll have a lag effect of that kind, but new cars pretty much on the way out now, you can see that. My obvious, desire would be to go straight to integrated transport systems where you pretty much eliminate the use of the private motor car and you move towards uh, public transport systems, improved facilities um, along those lines. And you plan for integrated transport in which there will still be some private cars, but far, far fewer than we have now. And the idea of substituting one electric vehicle for every one petrol and diesel vehicle today to get us to the same point we are in today, that's to me a nightmare. So on storage, we will see astonishing changes in battery technology, that's already happening. We could see regulators do the really smart thing, which would be to enforce new standards for battery manufacture now, which would ensure that no battery could be brought into the economy as a new battery without being capable of disassembly, of being stripped back down to the raw materials that are in that battery and all of those critical raw materials then being available for repurposed uh, use either in new batteries or whatever else it might be. We could design for end of life, which wouldn't eliminate the problem of um, needing large amounts of virgin raw materials, but it would make a significant dent in it. Mm -hmm. But isn't it typical? We were talking about 
decarbonization, recarbonization. Typically, everybody gets really excited about batteries. And how many people have you met who are really excited about pump storage? <laughs> you don't meet anybody who is out there proselytizing about pumped storage. Where is the Elon Musk of pumped storage? That's what I want to know. I mean, Elon Musk has made batteries sexy, which is sort of practically an inconceivable thing. But we need to make pumped storage sexy because that is a technology, very simple technology, which could provide for the storage needs of very large parts of our economy um, in a way that we're only beginning to see the outline for at the moment. Natural nature-based solution, watch out for it. it it'll, come, it'll come into the policy picture, but um, probably not soon enough, frankly. On the efficiency side, uh, Nick, I, look, we've just made a mess of this year after year after year, as you know. I, and I don't want to say that too dismissively. This is not easy. There are a lot of behavioral concerns about this. And will people actually do what they need to do to allow us to bring our existing housing stock into a sort of fit for purpose condition, which would be comfortable and very low carbon. And that's in a country which has a higher percentage of people living in poor quality housing than any other country in Europe, which is an absolute scandal uh, for a wealthy nation like the UK. But the policy instruments that we bring forward to deal with this are always, they always just miss the story somehow. They always just, head off in the wrong direction and the green home scheme now of course which is on the verge i think of disappearing almost completely now after another wave of enthusiasm again has just missed the mark um, for all sorts of different reasons so here's the bottom line on this there is no net zero roadmap for the uk that does not include massive retrofit of our existing housing. That's, that's the reality. The Committee on Climate Change has been absolutely clear about that. Doesn't matter how much electricity you get from renewables, if you can't do the retrofit on housing, and their figure, of course, as you probably know, Nick, is 22,000 homes retrofitted every week between now and 2030. If you can't do that, then you won't have a prom you haven't got a chance of getting to net zero by 2050. So it's a massive policy area which people continue to screw up uh, in, a, in a really astonishing way. Um, for me, a great missed opportunity because from the point of view of the green economy, building the supply chains for doing that kind of retrofit, creating hundreds of thousands of jobs, new skills, etc., is the obvious place to go. I mean, the, just on that, the, I mean, the implication of that, Jonathan, is that um, there's a couple of questions on this point. The implication of that is that the sort of reliance on behavioural economics, nudge economics, the sort of behaviour change uh, approaches that have been very sort of fashionable in public policy for the last decade or so, that they are just, they either don't work or they're completely insufficient um, for me to, you know, relying on nudging people or contributing their own yeah. behavioural changes to something which is at such a scale uh, yeah. and, and it's so urgent. Um, that you simply have got to do it through regulation and you know major you know uh, uh, fiscal policy interventions industrial policy interventions etc is that right exactly. absolutely i'm a little bit skeptical about most nudge theory frankly i think it's a load of tosh most of it but i'm um, sorry for those who are great advocates of nudge theory um, and in this instance though we need to regulate the hell out of this mm -hmm. so right now if you think of energy performance certificates for instance 
which is the easiest way of determining the energy efficiency of a building. It's got lots of problems, but it's the easiest go-to way of doing it. Um, that regulation could be tightened in such a way that it would not be legal to sell a house that had an EPC of less than C. You wouldn't be allowed to put your house on the market unless you had an EPC of C. And landlords would be forced to undertake energy efficiency retrofits to an even higher standard, particularly in social housing, in order to make those lets available. So I know that sounds almost punitive, but really and truly, we've got to get to the point now where the fiscal instruments just drive that change process in a way that behavior change never will. Great. Okay, let's um, let's move on to some questions then on the recarbonization side of, of your talk. Um, so there's a couple of questions saying, you know, where is the kind of profitability of uh, nature-based solutions? If you're relying on businesses to be able to change their business models, um, and, you, and in the case of renewables, being able to you know increase the price of supplying carbon, also and decrease the price of renewables. Well, what's the what's the kind of uh, equivalent? And I suppose one of the concerns about the Das Gupta report is a natural capital as a concept is is that you know if you do do that, you do you end up monetizing the commons. You know that what yeah. you do. You know, putting a price on nature and as with human capital you know you're you're expanding the realm of capital and monetization into well yeah. to, not just to, to humanity but to the entirety of our natural world um so that, that that's a point perhaps if you could answer that and then there just are some questions about you know that you talked a lot about technological innovation on the renewable side but you you mentioned in passing agroforestry are there these kinds of new technical developments, technological or innovations in respect of uh, food and farming, uh, land use and so on, that um, help us on the nature-based solutions side? To come to the concept of natural capital first and, and Parthadas Gupta's um, new report, every, every kind of bit of me resonates with um, people like George Monbiot who hate, just hate this idea of reducing the world to a capital stock, mm. which can be treated as any other capital stock in the economy, like manufactured capital or built capital or financial capital, what it is. And, and George writes about this very eloquently and emotionally, my heart is absolutely with him. But then I look at the implications of not being able to attribute value to the natural world in decision-making processes, planning processes, economic strategies, where all of the value of any particular part of the natural world is automatically counted as zero in those different processes. Until we can put a stop to that, I do, not, I do not see how we will be able to protect the natural world. And even here in the UK, and we're meant to be relatively sophisticated about this stuff, we're still seeing patterns of new development, the length and breadth of the country that are completely unacceptable in terms of managing the natural environment in the UK, protecting the areas of outstanding natural beauty, sites of scientific interest, the even you know, areas which are, would otherwise be held to be absolutely sacrosanct from the perspective of keeping them safe from new development. We're still 
doing development in that old way. So I, I feel that this notion of monetizing aspects of the natural world is a necessary evil in the short to medium term. George's concern is, and I again understand this, that if we get used to that, we will essentially have sold our soul and we will have failed to understand the relationship between humankind and nature at a very different, different, more philosophical, spiritual level. We'll just destroyed that set of uh, connections between ourselves and the natural world. But that's where I come out on that. And in terms of the monetization story, how do we turn this into something where, um, for instance, we, we could look to farming practice, which would guarantee the increase in soil carbon. This is a big part of the regenerative agriculture agenda, as you know, is that one of the things we absolutely have to do is to recarbonize our soils. We have to see very significant increases again in organic matter, in soil carbon, and farmers can't do that unless there's some mechanism by which their farming practices can change to make that possible, unless you legislate for it, unless you say you can't go on farming like that, end of story. But we're not going to do that. We're going to have to find a way of farmers being paid to build soil carbon. Mm. So that at the end of every accounting period, there was more carbon in their soil than there was at the start of that accounting period. So I mentioned Virgin Media. I could have given you any, any number of companies who are doing these wonderful net zero ambitions. None of them can get completely to net zero without some compensatory offsetting or some netting off of the residual emissions that they've got. And that's the, the case even for what might be considered a relatively light impact company in the world of media or IT, whatever it is, then they're not actually that squeaky clean anyway, but they can't get there at the moment to go to absolute zero. So there will be significant investments in netting off the residual emissions that they have left with on their balance sheet. Now for me, what I'm really interested in is seeing a mechanism by which companies will be able to invest in farming in the UK will be legitimate players in ensuring uh, proper compensation for farmers as they begin to farm much more regeneratively than they do at the moment. Sophisticated policy making, let's be honest, not easy. And how do you guarantee that the carbon that you see sequestered in those farms will be there for all time? I mean, 20 years down the road, a farmer could say, well, sod this for a lark. I've been building up my soil carbon really nicely for the last 20 years. Fantastic that I've been paid for doing it at X pounds per ton of CO2 additional carbon in my soils. I'm not interested in that any longer. I'm gonna plow up this whole thing and go back to the kind of intensive monocropping, intensive agriculture that I once knew and loved. And all of that carbon then is released back into the atmosphere. So. It's tricky stuff. I'm not making light of this. Yeah. This is a big challenge. But the one thing we know, if regenerative farming means anything, it means more rather than less organic matter and carbon in the soil. So we have got to come up with policy instruments that make that possible. And, and does it mean less meat consumption? Yes. I mean, I didn't do the whole thing about mm. what regenerative land use looks like. But it, the one thing we, there are two things that nobody still work against the grain of, of what farmers see their future is all about. One is far less meat consumption. I mean, 
far less meat consumption. Um, so better meat and therefore clear meat less often mm -hmm. with our diets becoming predominantly plant-based with a growing interest on the side for clean meat, lab-based meat thrown in for good measure. And I know that sounds a bit odd to a lot of people still who don't think we're ever going to see the mass rollout of lab-based uh, meat alternatives, but tr trust me, we are. Um, you only have to look at the amount of money going into that at the moment. And I can tell you within the next five years, we'll see a lot of that. So we need huge reduction to meat consumption. And then we need huge improvements in eliminating food waste. These two things, eliminating uh, intensive livestock rearing as a huge industry in the world today. And I mean eliminating, moving away from it as much as we possibly can and eliminating food waste. That would make a bigger difference to sustainable land use around the world than anything else. Um, th there's just a question about whether you'd say a little bit more about agroforestry. Um, you mentioned you've been reading a, a lot about that recently. I wonder if you could just say a bit more about agroforestry. Yes, I mean, this is one of the ways in which we could take the concept of mixed use farming, which is well established. And we, we, in a way, there is a growing recognition actually that more sustainable farming units need to be mixed to get the benefits that you have from integrating your crop cycles with livestock cycles and so on and so forth. So we're well familiar with the idea of diversifying in that way, but agroforestry puts a particular emphasis on building up the forest cover on any one bit of productive land and doing it in such a way that you get ancillary benefits from that. It does help with soil fertility. There's no question about that. It creates diversification in terms of economic opportunity. So the Soil Association, for instance, which is a very active proponent of agroforestry, is talking a lot about improving the quality of soft fruit in the UK through um, investment in uh, fruit trees and nuts and productive trees of that kind. And around the world, if we just move away from a UK basis, the agroforestry story is enormously important for small farmers, often subsistence farmers, who can use every single aspect of a tree, literally the whole of the, the, of the value of a tree to help promote more sustainable um, agro systems of the kind they've got um, in, in different parts of Africa and elsewhere. So it's, uh, we don't hear very much about it in policy terms. I look at it as a sort of halfway house between uh, crazy destructive intensive farming systems and hands off rewilding. Mm. Agroforestry entails a lot of very sophisticated farming practices, a lot of research, a lot of know-how um, and to me speaks more powerfully to the really productive use of land than some of the rewilding uh, systems that are being proposed. Hey, I, um, we, we've got a lot of questions. I, I'm, I'm sorry to the audience, we won't answer all of them, but I, I want to just <laughs> end with them because there are so many and they're great questions, but we won't be able to cover them all, I'm afraid. I, I hope we've covered a lot because I've been trying to group them and I think in what Jonathan said, he's covered many, many of your questions. Um, but I wanted to end just a bit on this question of the international scene again, thinking about Glasgow and COP26. Uh, and just a couple of questions there. The first is on, on the sort of future of emissions trading schemes. And you know, for some, these are you know, this attempt to apply market principles to 
um, carbon emissions has been a, a failure and a diversion from the regulatory action that's needed. Um, and for others, they remain a, a powerful and important tool in the toolbox. Um, and you talked uh, positively at the beginning about China's commitment um, uh, to, to net zero. You talked about uh, the Biden agenda that, um, you know, Biden has come in with, with, a, with a more radical green agenda than any president before him has had. Um, and with the appointment of John Kerry, with a commitment to engage in climate diplomacy to try to make a, a success of Glasgow. So I, I just wonder if you could say, just to end on, on the question of, you know, the role of international agreement uh, and emissions trading schemes. And then, you know, are, are you right, frankly, to be as positive as, as you perhaps indicated you were at the beginning about, <laughs> about Biden and, and, and perhaps also about Xi Jinping and China? <laughs> yeah. Uh, almost certainly not, Nick, but um, look, it's, uh, I don't know where else we go if we don't stay positive about this stuff, frankly. Um, the, the story about emissions trading, it hasn't, been a, it's, it hasn't been a failure because, you know, the EU ETS now, I, I think the price of a ton is around 40 euros a ton at the moment. And with those sectors that are involved in the ETS, it's not across the economy, as you know, it's only the carbon intensive sectors. That's a financial instrument that has had some impact on persuading them to change their ways. But honestly, I think these trading systems are open to endless abuse and gaming by people who know how to play the system to their own benefit. I have long been an advocate of carbon taxing rather than carbon trading. I think it's a much cleaner instrument. You can gauge exactly what you want to achieve with a carbon tax and what you hope the outcome would be from that. Whereas with a trading system, particularly a trading system prone to volatility, you're never going to be able to define accurately what the outcomes will be at the end of a given trading period. You can't because it's subject to market volatility and everything else. So my hope is that we will move over the course of the next five years towards an understanding of the need for carbon taxation. Now, we may not call it that, and you mentioned the USA, I can assure you it won't, won't be called that in the USA. But we sometimes forget that America occasionally has got quite close to understanding the benefits of a capping system in the USA, and mm -hmm. then a levy being brought to bear on the sources of those emissions, essentially the hydrocarbon inputs into the economy. There's still a very active debate in the USA, notwithstanding the insanity of the current Republican Party. There's a very active debate about what is called cap and dividend. So you put a cap on the amount of emissions that you will allow in the economy. You then devise an economic instrument that generates the revenues and those revenues are distributed as a dividend to all American citizens. So the only way that you can break this story about new taxes on the American people is to say, well, no, actually, this is a distributive mechanism by which the economic situation of almost everybody in the country will be improved as a consequence of this mechanism. So I'm much more interested in measures of that kind, especially mm -hmm. those that avoid the regressive uh, impacts on disadvantaged and poorer communities, which is critical. We're not going to get anywhere if we have a carbon taxing system um, that makes life worse for, for those people, as President Macron <laughs> learned to his cost by trying to impose fuel duties on those who already felt 
squeezed and disadvantaged by high prices of, um, of fuels, as you know. So I'm, I think that's really important. The odd thing is China is the world's largest carbon trader. I think it's something like 60% of the Chinese economy is already embraced in one way or another in a carbon trading system. And um, oddly enough, the UK government worked really closely with the Chinese government back in the 2000s to um, help them develop and design trading policies, which they have now implemented, whereas we um, often haven't. But I don't, for me, I, I think we're still gonna have to go to the simple economic truth that we need to see the cost of things increase when we're not paying the real price for those things because we're externalizing the cost onto the environment. We're gonna to have to go to systems of that kind. And the sooner we grasp hold of that nettle and start talking about this, um, the better it'll be. Maybe COVID-19 recovery programs. I was thinking about this the other day, listening to Rishi Sunak and saying, no, it's too early to start talking about new taxes. I don't know, I'll bet you there's a whole little team of people beavering away in the treasury right now saying, what would we get back into the exchequer if we brought in a carbon tax, not just for the carbon intensive sectors, but across the entire economy. And if we brought it in gradually and didn't scare the horses and didn't make people feel that this was an absolutely wicked imposition on them at this time, how would that work? How many billions could we get in year one, in year two, and then look to year 10? I can't believe they haven't done their sums on that on that basis. I can't believe it. Yeah, I, I think the, the the green taxes team in the Treasury will be fully staffed and working hard. At the moment. <laughs> and uh, uh, if it doesn't form a part of the uh, fiscal consolidation that is inevitably going to come, um, I'd be very surprised. I think uh, I think what you've just said there is, is is on the money. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much indeed. I mean, you've, you've answered questions there really fully and comprehensively. Uh, for the best part of 45 minutes. So we're incredibly grateful to you for doing that and, and as well as for your lecture. And uh, obviously I recommend to everybody to, to read your book. It's been incredibly well reviewed and um, you know, we had a, a glimpse of it this evening in what you said. So thank you so much for your time. And just to, just to let everybody know uh, who is watching us that, um, that we have been recording, as I said at the beginning, and uh, we will make the, uh, the Jonathan's talk and his answers available as a, a podcast and an online video. So do come back to our website and, and have a look and it'll be there shortly. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, a very big thanks again to you, Jonathan, for, for your talk and for your answers this evening. It's, it's really good to have you with us and thank you so much. Not at all. Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Okay. okay. Good night, Evan. Good night, everyone.